my family members asked this morning, uh, what was I preaching on? And I said, well, I'm preaching on this verse, pray without ceasing. And of course, the immediate question that was asked, just boom, uh, the immediate follow-up question to receiving a verse like this is perhaps the question that you are having right now, which is, how is that possible? Am I supposed, does that mean that I'm supposed to be constantly praying at every minute of every day, in which case, by the way, we don't have to go to church today because I'm busy, I'm busy praying, right? Am I supposed to spend every moment or ev of every day in an actual prayer or is this some sort of hyperbole as Paul is often want to write? Well, a couple things before we get started that we can uh, remark about that question, although that question will continue and carry us through the morning in its entirety. But a couple of remarks just as some preliminary observations. First, do notice that at, le at least what this passage means is that we shouldn't give up on prayer. Like that, that there's no occasion in my life where I conclude something along the lines of, well, I tried prayer for a while, it's clearly not working, so I guess I'll try something else. That to pray without ceasing is to pray in such a way that we, that we never give up on the idea, let's say, of prayer. Right? It's not vitamin C. I hoped it would work, but it's clearly not doing anything, so I guess I'll try vitamin D now. Right? That prayer is not one of those things. It is a basic and fundamental component of the Christian life. And so that it should be a practice that we never grow out of. That's at the very least what Paul means. But notice that as he talks about prayer, he bunches it, this, this verse, he bunches this verse with other kind of always and everywhere aspects to the Christian life. I'll read it uh, again. See uh, verse uh, in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, Paul is saying, he's certainly saying don't give up on prayer, but he's actually saying something more than that. If you put that prayer command in the context of the other commands, it, it arises to this new level of command that Paul often engages in, which is to say, you should always be doing this. You should always be joyful. Right? There is no circumstance in which you are not called to joy. Even when you're mourning, there is a joy and a peace that the Christian has access to that undergirds and overshadows every dark place. We always have access to joy because we always have the hope of the resurrection. And so even as we mourn, and we mourn legitimately, we don't pretend that evil is good. We don't pretend that evil is some sort of non-substance. We believe that evil exists and that it's bad and that we should lament over it. But even as we lament, we as Christians, Paul says, are to be always rejoicing. And notice, the point of this sermon is not joy, the point of it is prayer. Notice that prayer for Paul is the same kind of thing. It is something that we are 
always and constantly engaged in. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. How is that possible? I'm not a monk. You're not monks. You've got things to do, right? You've got exams to study for. How am I supposed to be doing prayer while doing calculus? Or actually, maybe those two go hand in hand. How am I to be doing prayer while I'm reading a book, while I'm crunching the numbers, while I'm making dinner? How, I've got other things that I have to, I've got to make toast for the kids. I've got to, I've got to prepare, uh, I've got to clean the house for guests. Like you've got other things and good things that you're to be engaged in. How is it that we are to pray without ceasing? That's our problem for this morning. That's our puzzle if you will, our riddle. First, we're going to look at the problem, why we don't pray without ceasing. Second, we're going to look at the solution. And third, the process. First, the problem. The problem that we face, the problem that Paul is addressing, the reason why we fail to pray without ceasing is essentially this. We treat prayer, our basic mode is to treat prayer as a kind of adjunct to life. Prayer, we might say, is something we do occasionally. It is, by definition, occasional. Now think about your prayer life. Maybe you schedule in prayer, right? You are uh, of uh, perhaps of the generation where before you go to bed, you bow the knee and you Clasp your hands and you pray. You schedule that into your day. It's a great habit to get into. Pray, morning prayer, evening prayer. That you, you have a schedule for prayer. You pray at every meal, perhaps. Or perhaps you're more spirit-led. You're a spontaneous uh, type of individual. And you pray as the mood strikes you. Maybe you have a combination of both. You have some scheduled prayers. You pray as the mood strikes you. Or perhaps you only pray, and many of us probably fall into this category, we only pray when there's some reason for prayer, some presenting cause, some uh, issue or situation or occasion that motivates us to pray. We are in a particularly desperate challenge, perhaps. Or we're facing anxieties that we haven't faced before. You're sick or a loved one is sick and so you bow the knee and you pray in each of those cases our prayers are essentially occasional in nature that is to say they are response to a stimulus and what Paul wants from us while not uh, ignoring those the importance of those kinds of prayers he certainly doesn't want us to avoid that kind of thing certainly not saying that praying in response is a bad thing Paul wants more from us. He wants us to think about prayer differently. And the reason why we don't think about prayer differently is twofold. I want to suggest to you there's two reasons why we basically think about prayer as occasional in nature rather than as constant. You see, Paul wants us to think about prayer as a constant mode of life. The way in which we do life is prayerfully. But we tend to treat it as occasional. Why is that? 
Well, one reason that we treat it as a casual I'd submit is because we see, uh, we do not recognize the dangerous situation in which we find ourselves. We, we do not realize how perilously at risk and dependent we are. We go through life thinking we are basically capable of handling most problems that we face on our own and in isolation from our neighbors or our God. One of the things that Paul does, in fact, if you look again at this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, you'll notice that Paul has basically breaks down into two sections, a theological section from, chapter, from verse 1 to 11, and then a bunch of miscellaneous commands uh, in 12 through 21. Those two sections shouldn't be disconnected. This is a kind of thing that Paul does. He'll give you some overarching theology. Here's how you need to see the world. Here's how you need to see your relationship with God. Here's how you need to see the uh, Jesus Christ and your union with him. Gives you some theology. And then particularly at the end of the letters, he will spam a good deal of commands at you. He will throw out a list of commands that you are to be engaged in given the theology. And so we are to read these commands in light of the theology. So if you'll look back up, and the reason why I had us read this long section uh, is because if you look back up, we are given the context within which prayer is particularly important. Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, okay? You already know this, but I would like to remind you uh, of something that you are already fully, fully aware of. I'd like to direct your attention to something that you already believe and already know, namely that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The end is near. It will come upon us unexpectedly. It will come without warning. We are creatures who await the second coming of Christ. And in the meantime, we are surrounded by darkness. We're surrounded by temptation. We're just surrounded by enemies. And so what you need is the full armor of God. You need protection because you are entering in to a danger, into dangerous territory. You are facing a clear and present, in fact, a clear and ever-present danger. This uh, letter, 1 Thessalonians, comes at uh, the beginning of Paul's ministry. This is an early Pauline letter. But even the later Paul will not leave this theme. In fact, perhaps a better known passage about the end of the world and what you need to do because of the end of the world comes to us in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You need to be properly equipped in the moment and time in which you live because you are, you are doing battle with forces beyond you. You are battling the world, the flesh, and even the demonic forces. And because that is the context within which you live your life, you need the armor of God. And Paul goes into that in 1 Thessalonians. He goes into it in Ephesians. 
what constitutes that armor? Well, faith and love and righteousness, but also praying, Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the spirit. We live at the end of the ages. We face last day's temptations. We do battle not only with the world, not only with the flesh, but even with demonic forces. Equip yourself with constancy of prayer. One of the reasons we're not constantly in the mode of prayer is because we don't appreciate the, the danger in which we find ourselves. And we need to appreciate that danger. I haven't seen the new Star Wars, so the last Star Wars I've seen uh, is Rogue One. And if you've seen Rogue One, you know there's the, there's the not-quite-Jedi who uh, is, he's, he's going, he's going he's gonna to solve a problem, he's got to go into battle, he's going to be fired at by thousands of stormtroopers, so he goes uh, with this mantra, you know, I'm one with the force, the force is with me, I'm one with the force, the force is with me, right? He's, he go, he's scared, he's facing danger, so he goes with this meditation uh, to the force. A couple things, first, that's not how the force works, and Disney should know better, but second, and more importantly, he gets it. He gets that he is facing a dangerous situation. And so what he does is he puts himself into the mindset of readiness. Third, our prayer is so far and exceedingly better than anything that is represented in that philosophy. Because we pray to a personal God who invites us, who hears us. Not an impersonal force, not a power that we know, not metachlorians, whatever they are. We, we pray to a personal God who receives us and invites us in and who responds to us as his creatures, not just his creatures, his sons and daughters. That's actually the second reason why we aren't praying constantly is we don't realize, we don't realize our danger, but we, don't, we also don't realize that we are children of the light, that we are children, as Paul says, who have constant and ever-present access to the knowledge of the truth that comes through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. You are children of light, he says in verse 5. You are not of the dark. You see, you face these dangers not as the non-Christian faces these dangers. You face these dangers having access to the ever-present light who shines in your hearts and in through the word because you have the uh, constant presence of Jesus Christ. God, for God, verse 9, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You see, what you have as a child of God is constant and ever-present communion with a person who understands you, namely Jesus Christ. You are facing the darkness, but you are a child of light, which means that you are constantly in the mode of communion and conversation with he who is the light, Jesus Christ. He who came to be the light, Jesus Christ. That then is the solution. The problem is we, all of our prayers, we treat prayer as this occasional thing. 
the solution to that problem is to see in Christ the source of a constant, ever-present communion with God that exists even when we're asleep. The solution is that Christ is there. He is ever-present. And he is there, according to Paul, because of his resurrection and ascension. Here's how it works. We, by nature and by, our, by, by the fall, have limited access to God. In our sin, we do not have access to God. We are barred from God. God will say thee nay if you do not belong to his son. You are not welcome into his presence. What God does, though, discontent with that, discontent to leave us as abandoned sons, because he loves us, he sent his son to be like us in every respect, to die a sinner's death, to pay for our guilt, and to crucify our sin, and, and here's the point for Paul, and to be, to be raised and ascended into heaven. You see, Jesus dwells in two places. On the one hand, he has sent his spirit, and so he dwells within us. He has sent his spirit upon us as individuals and upon the church. And so Jesus could not be closer to us than he already is. A sermon a couple of weeks ago on John 16, we made, John 14, we made this point. Jesus says, it is better for me to go away. I, I'm with you disciples right now, but it's actually going to be better for you for me to ascend into heaven. Why? Because then I can send the Holy Spirit. And in sending the Holy Spirit, Jesus' logic uh, goes to say, in sending the Holy Spirit, I will actually be closer to you then than I am now. We're physically present at the moment. But there is a spiritual communion that can take place as Jesus sends the Spirit in his resurrection. So Jesus dwells within our own hearts constantly. You don't need a second filling of the Spirit. You have the Spirit, and so Christ dwells within you. If you have received him, you have received all of Christ. He dwells within you. In him you live and move and have your being. Whether you are awake or asleep, whether you're conscious or unconscious, whether you're anxious or joyful, whether you face some catastrophe or challenge, or whether you're in a relative period of peace, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the one place Jesus dwells, but he also dwells in heaven itself. He has been risen, and he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And because he does so, he exercises a particular role as your priest. He talks to God on your behalf. He intercedes for you. Here's Hebrews chapter 7, which I think puts it quite succinctly. The former priests, that is the old covenant priests, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since, hear this, he always lives to intercede for them. The reason you can pray without ceasing. The reason why this is not merely hyperbolic. The reason why you are to live your life in the basic mode of prayer before God the Father is because Jesus is interceding with you for you without ceasing before the heavenly throne room of God. 
there is never a moment in time when Jesus isn't bringing you before the heavenly father and interceding on your behalf through prayer. You have constant, ever-present access to your heavenly father because you have union and communion with Jesus Christ spiritually in your heart. And Jesus Christ reigns bodily the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the reason why we're able to pray without ceasing. Jesus is the reason why there is never a point in time when we are outside of communion and conversation with God. How then can I pray these kinds of prayers? How does my prayer life, what is the process for patterning my prayer life after these truths? How do I move from occasional prayers, situational prayers, to praying without ceasing? A, the constant mode of communion and conversation with God the Father. Well, first, a couple of uh, kind of concluding or applicatory remarks from all that. First, don't give up on those other kinds of prayers that you're praying. Okay? At the very beginning, we consider, what does my prayer life look like? Do I mostly schedule my prayers? Am I mostly a spontaneous prayer? Am I mostly an occasional prayer? I'm a deal maker, perhaps, with God. I'm in a tough spot, and then I pray. Right? What does my prayer life look, at, look like? Okay, take that information and, and don't stop doing those things. Don't stop scheduling your prayers. Don't stop praying in response to requests from friends and family. Continue to do those things. In fact, double down on those things. Th those, uh, I think for, perhaps for many of us, the most difficult one of those uh, in our day and age is the scheduled prayer. I was watching uh, The Crown show uh, about uh, Queen Elizabeth and, uh, and it reminded me of how we used to pray because before going to bed she she literally gets down on her knees in one scene and prays in front of her bed you know, bows over her bed sheets and, and prays and that's how I used to pray and I, I for some reason I gave up on that I, I pray differently now I don't do that formal process of bowing the knee and planning out my prayers and um, but as we sang earlier, there is a good, legitimate, helpful role to play in preparing your suit. Oh, my soul, thy suit prepare. And I'm going to plan ahead. And I'm going to bring that before my Lord and Maker. I'm going to think through the day with my children and my spouse. I'm going to think through the day and bring the concerns of the day confession of the day, the adoration and the thanksgiving relevant to the day. I'm going to bring that before my God every single night. I am like Daniel, not going to give up on prayer. This is what Daniel does, right? The reason I picked this passage in, in Daniel 6 is, again, that last line. It might seem like a long way to go to that last line, but one of the things I love about this story is you have this cataclysmic difficulty that is about to come down upon Daniel. The, the powers that be in the ancient Near East are swirling and plotting to bring Daniel down over this one issue of prayer. And, and, and Daniel realizes it, and his response is so intriguing. What he does is he prays three times a day 
as he'd done previously. I love that little line. He, he just keeps doing what he was already doing. Like, he doesn't stage this, you know, rebellion. He just keeps doing faithfully what he knows he should be doing. Don't give up on prayer. Schedule it. Keep it as a regular rhythm of your life and the life of your household. Keep those times, those formal prayer times. Continue to pray when people ask for prayer. Somebody asks for prayer, they say, I'm, I'm struggling with this, I need prayer. And you, and you say instinctively, oh, I'll pray for that, I'll, I'll remember to pray for that. Write it down. Make sure you do that. Stop at that very moment and pray. It's okay to pray over the phone, by the way. There, there are things that we can do to make sure that our formal scheduled prayers and our spontaneous prayers are more regular, more constant, and more faithful to our God. But having that framework and having that structure, what I would encourage us to do to make prayer a mode of existence, to make it a mode of the Christian life, is to consider the fact that we are always in conversation and communion with Christ. We are always in conversation and communion with Christ. And so what happens in our life as we mature in Christ, as we mature in our relationship with God, and as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and take advantage of the means of grace, what happens in our life is we begin to see everything and experience everything through the lens of my relationship with Jesus. Maybe this happened to you when you got married. If you're married in this room and you, uh, you know, when you, when you got married, you didn't lose the things that you used to love, right? You still loved those old movies that you always loved, even if your spouse hadn't watched those old movies. You still loved the same foods. But what happens is, is you gain new loves, right? You, you gain new uh, appreciations, but you also learn and you kind of naturally cultivate this seeing the world through your spouse's eyes. Seeing the world through, and everything that you experience in the world in, in a way that your spouse might experience it. Right? That's always imperfect on this world. But you start to think in terms of the relationship. You're no longer a monad. You're connected to others. And you start to appreciate and understand things in your connection with others. Your relationship with God is like that. In fact, it's the very definition of what that is. We, in him, we live and move and have our being. God is not an adjunct in our life. He is the constant defining presence of our life. He is the nature of our identity. We are his people. And so what happens is, is as I experience new things, whether it's joy or challenge, whether it's as mundane as a test on Friday or as difficult and, and, and crippling as cancer, I see that through the lens of my relationship with God. And until I've seen it through the lens of my relationship with God, I don't really see it. I don't really know how to process it. As we move to that way of thinking, what we find is, is that we are constantly in conversation with God. We are constantly thinking and interpreting all things through the lens 
of our relationship to the true word. I wake up in the morning. I'm a guy. Uh, I think many guys probably feel like this. I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I think about is, what's for breakfast? And then uh, at bref- after breakfast, the first thing I think about is, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do for lunch. And then, huh, dinner sounds pretty good right now, right? Like, you're, you're cl- I, I kind of plan out my day around meals, and until I know what those meals are, my day is really kind of a mess, right? So, obviously, our relationship with God is far more important than uh, meals, but we do that with things like meals, with things like work, with the various uh, uh, petty aspects of our life, and yet we don't think or plan our day around our relationship with our Savior. Where we need to move in our thinking and our spiritual maturity and in our prayer life is that everything is dialogic. Every event of my life is part of an ongoing dialogue between me and my Savior between me and my Lord, and so that I'm bringing every thought captive to him. What happens as we do that is that all those other alwayses falls into place. Rejoice always, love always, be always at peace, never at fear. That flows only through communion and conversation with our God. And so our encouragement from this text is to not be sometimes in prayer, but to be always in prayer. Always in prayer through the Spirit, through our union with Christ, that we might have peace, love, prosperity, joy. These things belong to us as we are united to our Savior. Father, we pray that you would help us. That you would help us to remember that Christ isn't just one benefit, one aspect, one component of our lives together, but that Christ is all in all. That Christ is, in fact, the most perfect good, the most perfect end to which we could strive. Lord, help us to see Jesus as the pinnacle good, as our chief end, as our greatest glory. And help us to think about all things in terms of him. We pray that this would transform then how we pray. In your name, amen.